Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Uh, you know, the uh, Treasury had issued a statement yesterday saying that if the Federal Reserve ceases to reinvest some or all of its maturing Treasury securities, Treasury would likely need to increase the amount of borrowing from the public. And uh, under the plan, officials would increase both Treasury bill and Treasury nominal coupon auction sizes. Here to tell us more about this potential process is Chris Whalen. He is the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, and he is the author of a new book entitled Ford Men, From Inspiration to Enterprise. Chris Whalen, thank you for being with us. Uh, maybe just comment on what the Treasury Secretary, uh, with the Treasury Department, rather, is is putting out in a statement that they're just mm. going to have to increase borrowing in order to make up for the runoff that uh, or the lack of buying from the Federal Reserve. Well, of course, Pim. Um, thank you for having me on, by the way. Uh, the government's been subsidized by the Fed. That's been the primary you know, benefit of quantitative easing and all the rest of this. It hasn't really helped the you know, private economy. It's been mostly a, a subsidy program for indebted governments. So absolutely, if the Fed is no longer buying uh, treasuries, if they're no longer buying all of the agency issuance in the mortgage market, which they are today, uh, then yeah, obviously the markets would have to support that issuance. You know, Chris, it seems like uh, we don't hear that much about the relationship or discussions between the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve. I mean, how much they're coordinating or not. I mean, because as you were saying, the Fed's uh, bond buying program certainly acted as a support to valuations and suppressed borrowing costs for the U.S. government. Now, though, not only is the is the Fed considering allowing its balance sheet to run off, but the Treasury uh, came out today with a statement saying that they are seriously considering uh, longer dated ultra-long dated uh, treasuries, possibly selling 50- or 100-year bonds. I mean, do you think that there's an increasing tension between these two agencies? No, no, absolutely not, because the, the Fed is the alter ego of the Treasury. This is why it's not allowed to do business directly with the Treasury. When they buy and sell debt, they have to go through a dealer, because otherwise it would be the snake eating its tail, right? Um, the Fed doesn't make money. They only incur expenses. So whatever they earn off their portfolio in terms of interest, right, they subtract their operating expenses and they remit that back to the Treasury. And essentially they're forgiving that debt. So Congress pretends that this is income, but it's really not. It's, it's simply another face, like a Hindu god, of, of our government, one being the Treasury, the other being the Federal Reserve System. But they are back-to-back. They're one entity at the, in, in economic terms. And you know who's written beautifully about this is a good friend, uh, Bob Eisenbeiss, then at Cumberland Advisors. You know, he worked at the Atlanta Fed. He knows this subject cold. And when people talk about the Fed making money, he just laughs because they clearly don't understand the, the relationship. 
Chris, one of the things that I know that my colleague Lisa uh, has, Lisa Bromitz has been following has been uh, the increase in charge uh, in charge-offs for subprime automobile loans and also the mm. increase in provisions that banks such as Capital One have had to put aside in order yeah. to deal well, with... Yeah, remarkable? Well, with, uh, and that has to do also now with credit, uh, with revolving credit, or uh, credit card uh, loans. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could speak to that issue. Do you see this as part of a, a larger cycle trend? Yes. Uh, credit costs generally bottomed out in 2014, early 2015. So both for bondholders, PIM, and for banks, the cost of credit is going up. Uh, we had, again, a Fed-induced boom in consumer credit. Uh, and also in other asset classes. And so now we're going to see the result of that. Whenever you have a period of really low rates, when the central banks are out trying to make things easy for debtors, you hide the cost of credit. And when you pull back on that and you try and normalize the markets, you start to see the, the costs in terms of defaults. Yeah. And certainly in autos, you're going to see that. So, Chris, when I talk to analysts about this particular increase in consumer charge-offs, uh, they all say this does not appear to be a systemic risk at this point. Mm -hmm. um, first, do you agree with that? But second, if it's not, are there specific companies that you're watching that could suffer disproportionately from this deterioration in consumer credit? Well, the, the companies who are really on the front lines with autos are the private lessors. These are companies that would buy cars from the automakers and turn around and lease them. But they own the residual risk. In other words, if that car is not worth $20,000 when it comes back on the lease and they have to sell it for eighteen, they lose two grand. So the smaller players who have done the below-prime lending, they're pulling back. They saw the losses go up and they're starting to take less risk. This means that General Motors, Ford, all the rest of them can sell fewer cars because there's less credit in the system to support the inventory, right? So the real issue to me is the banks are going to get more careful, clearly. Bondholders are also on notice now, and they're going to demand better terms, higher coupons in, you know, to, in consideration for the losses. But the, the non-banks, I think the smaller players who have predominated in the subprime sector, they're going to pull back a lot, the auto nations and the rest of them, because they just can't sit there and take losses every quarter. They're going to try and adjust supply and demand. And as you see, the, you know, the retail uh, pricing for uh, used cars is reflecting this. It's, you know, there's too much product out there. And as I say, you know, we got back to record levels uh, over five years thanks to uh, – you know, thanks to the Fed, and they it helped save the automakers. If they don't run at least 70, right. 80 percent utilization, they're not making money. Yeah. You know, it's costing them cash. So the whole system was driven by credit. And again, you know, there are many bubbles, and this is just one of them. And this is the Fed desperately trying to make something happen. Right. But you know, the economy, population growth is half of one percent. Productivity right. is flat. Yeah. So that's it. <laughs> Chris Whalen, thank you so much for joining us. Chris Whalen is chairman of Whalen Global Advisors in New York. He is also the author of a new book, Ford Men from Inspiration to Enterprise.
so as we keep talking about Puerto Rico, uh, is moving to restructure its $70 billion of debt in a bankruptcy-like proceeding that will happen in the U.S. To get more details on how this may proceed, let's bring in Michelle Kasky, who covers uh, all things Puerto Rico for us here at Bloomberg News. And Michelle, can you give us a little bit of a sense of how expected or not this pretty rapid move to a Title III restructuring happened. It, it does seem very rapid, although um, they've been negotiating for a while with creditors. It wasn't getting anywhere. It, it you know, it, some at some moments it looked like maybe um, something would happen um, or that they were actually get, making some progress, but unfortunately. Um, they just they didn't reach that common ground, and uh, the governor t- today announced that the the federal control board would file. He requested that they would file, and uh, we just have um, just a few moments ago um, it was filed in court. Well, and I'm looking at the letter that uh, Governor Ro- Ricardo Rossello uh, filed, and he actually highlighted the stay, the fact that uh, Puerto Rico's immunity to lawsuits was lifted earlier this week, and that. That expiration was really what pushed them into having to file for this restructuring. Definitely. Without that legal stay, um, then Puerto Rico faces um, lawsuits from creditors seeking repayment, considering that Puerto Rico has not been paying on its debts. And um, there's also existing lawsuits out there that could move forward. So in order to get additional protection from um, new and existing lawsuits, uh, Title III does offer Puerto Rico that. What does Title III offer the people of Puerto Rico? Well, like you have mentioned, it does offer them a more orderly process to uh, restructure the the seventy billion that they want to reduce, and um, and again, the the creditor lawsuits are suspended um, during uh, Title Three. So uh, let's talk about the legal bills, because I know that you reported several years ago that the bills at that point for Puerto Rico were already uh, in the excess of $60 million. That was just a beginning salvo, and I'm sure that they have only continued to mount. Does it mean that Puerto Rico will have to pay less in legal fees if there is a restructuring that's in a more orderly bankruptcy type of way, uh, or is that not part of this picture? Well, I think either way, with or without Title III, um, Puerto Rico, um, you know, needs to b- pay their lawyers, and they will be, they will be um, needing this outside legal help, and uh, it's going to be very costly. All right, it's going to be. We know this is going to be very, very costly. It already is very, very costly. Uh, will this allow the Puerto Rican? What I was trying to get it with the people is. It, Will this allow the Puerto Rican Commonwealth to focus on fixing the economy, which then will supposedly create revenue, tax revenue that will be able to support the Commonwealth? Because otherwise, this is like a, a, a you know, it's like a double track reality. You've got one group over here, and then you've got the people who are actually living the problems of Puerto Rico on mm-hmm. the other side. No, definitely. I mean, that is uh, that that is their their biggest challenge right now is to get economic activity going again on the island. They need that, and hopefully, the um, you know the, the court will see that as well. And um, have they enacted it, anything? I mean, for example, one of the reasons that Puerto Rico is in such dire straits is the federal government granted it triple tax free. Uh, status for municipal bond uh, investors, plus they gave huge tax breaks to the pharmaceutical industry to manufacture their products there. 
sure. I mean, the, the new governor, I mean, his plan is he wants to increase tourism on the island. He wants to um, have the private sector more involved in in hiring and, and taking over some um, some of the programs that, that the central government has been doing. He, he definitely wants to increase job creation in, in the private sector and to reduce uh, the government's pay, payroll. Uh, Michelle, I'm not seeing much of a reaction in Puerto Rico bonds. Why is that? Well, remember the news just came out, the headlines first came out at about 1040. And so it's only been about an hour and we don't typically see as much active trading in municipal bonds as you would see in, for instance, the stock market. Um, so, uh, but we will see some some trading today and um, in the past couple of days, actually, Puerto Rico bonds have been trading up in price. And what I've been hearing from people is they believe that's because of the uh, Medicaid money that uh, the island did receive from, from Congress. I just do want to say, uh, just breaking across uh, the Bloomberg, that Assured Guarantee and MBIA drop their legal cases against Puerto Rico after this latest filing. So it seems like uh, this is moving toward the direction a lot of people thought was inevitable. Right. Yeah. The game of chicken may be actually over by now. <laughs> How long is this going to take, Michelle? Oh, gosh. I mean, today the governor was saying that it could take years. Um, you know, it, it it all depends on how in what a judge can do, can he bring everybody together um, and he or she can, can that person, that judge bring everyone together and, and, and strike a deal. Thank you so much. Michelle Kasky. Yeah, I was just going to say, following the news in Puerto Rico, just to put it into perspective, the unemployment rate for Puerto Rico is over 11 and a half percent. So just to get that uh, information out there. A lot of problems. Yeah. Michelle Kasky is our uh, Puerto Rico reporter for She's going to be doing this for a long time. It's not going to be over, but no. there's so much money at stake. And as you keep pointing out, and rightly so, Pim, there are a lot of people at stake as well. Well, you got people at universities who wonder whether they're going to be able to get a job when they graduate. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash lens. What do Filipino President Rodrigo Duterte have in common with uh, Egypt's General Abdel Fattah el-Sisi and uh, Turkey's President Recep uh, Erdogan? Well, here to tell us is Eli Lake. Eli Lake is a columnist for Bloomberg View. He can be followed on Twitter at Eli Lake. And Eli, go ahead. Tell us, what do uh, these three world leaders have in common? Well, they've all been courted by uh, President Trump uh, in slightly over-the-top rhetoric for an American president. Um, you know, in the case of Duterte, you've got somebody who has boasted about um, an absolutely vicious campaign against his nation's uh, drug dealers um, and has basically admitted that this sort of vigilante campaign has resulted in the extrajudicial, extrajudicial killings of uh, drug dealers. Um, you know, he is... a 
widely seen as a sort of scourge on the world stage. And yet in the phone call over the weekend, Trump invited him to the White House. Um, you know, in, in the case of uh, Erdogan, the president of Turkey, you know, he has been driving Turkey into autocracy, uh, you know, over uh, a period of uh, several years now. But last month, there was a referendum that consolidated his power and could keep him in office uh, until, uh, you know, for the next dozen years. Uh, this was widely condemned by people who care about Turkey's democracy, and uh, Trump called them up after the uh, referendum results came in to congratulate them. Um, <laughs> so all of this is sort of an example of how he has buttered up these authoritarians. Yeah, Eli, you wrote a column. I love the title. Trump decides to make it springtime for despots. Uh, you know, talking about all of these overtures to uh, widely feared and frankly uh, reviled, certainly by human rights organizations, leaders, but um, who have sort of auto- autocratic rule. Uh, that said, in this column, you point out that it does not appear that there is necessarily a strategy uh, behind these overtures by President Trump. And, you know, can we just chalk this up to shock value and, you know, headlines that are going to get a lot of clicks? Well, there may be there may be a strategy, I should say. Um, you know, in the case of Duterte, really bad guy, uh, very repressive, a danger to the Philippines, but somebody who under the last year of Obama really did threaten to come out of the U.S. alliance orbit and into China's embrace. That would be very bad for us strategically. Um you know, you could argue that Trump is trying to sort of woo him back uh, in this fairly unconventional way. What I would say is that you, America is an exceptional nation, and we don't need to basically forget our values and our you know, principles as a, as, a, as a liberal democracy uh, in order to work practically with countries like the Philippines when they have less than ideal leaders. And it's Trump's style to sort of be over the top in both directions. When he really doesn't like something, he uses hyperbolic rhetoric in one direction. When he decides he likes somebody, he uses hyperbolic language in the other direction. We're all kind of getting used to that, um, you know, more than 100 days in now. But at the same time, it is a troubling trend. And I thought it was important to sort of uh, highlight it. Eli, do you have any idea why he castigates the allies of the United States, such as uh, Canada, Mexico, Germany, even NATO? Well, you know, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I have also heard that Trump does talk a lot with Justin Trudeau. He has a lot of communications with Theresa May of the United Kingdom. And even recently, he's had, you know, a few phone calls with Angela Merkel, too. He showed up when she visited uh, early in his presidency, it wouldn't shake her hand. Um, but I think, you know, this gets back to some of his, you know, longstanding uh, campaign rhetoric and worldview. Um, and this is something that he's been talking about for like 20, 30 years, which is that he feels that the United States gets uh, screwed on trade deals. And so this is something that's really the top of his mind in a way that we haven't seen in uh, recent modern presidents where, you know, the idea that we would have these free trade deals was not debated really between the two major parties with the exception of maybe Ross Perot and NAFTA, but he was never an independent candidate. Right. Well, Trump's the president now, and this is he's, he represents a worldview we associate with guys like Pat Buchanan and others that say, um, you know, um, the global economy hurts a lot of Americans, and we should do something about that. Well, Eli, when you talk with people in Washington off the record, do you hear more support for alliances with some of these uh, countries that have been otherwise shut out uh, by virtue of their being good trade partners, regardless of their humanitarian policies? It depends. I mean, what's interesting here is that 
um, a lot of Democrats and liberals really jumped on the Duterte comments and Erdogan um, from Trump. But, you know, if you go back 10 years, the major criticism of George W. Bush was that he was too much of an idealistic ideologue when it came to the U.S. role in spreading democracies. And this is one of the the impulses that got us into the Iraq war. So we've seen a, such a dramatic shift in the Republican Party in a decade on this that I think a lot of people do have whiplash. I would say that the Trump approach, where it seems like you know it doesn't even factor in his public comments at times, although I was told by Michael Anton, the spokesman for the National Security Council, that he does bring up human rights issues in private with some of these leaders, like uh, the Egyptian general, al-Sisi, um, but in that in that respect, I think that we're sort of still looking for a bit of a middle ground. And what we've seen is that even in the first hundred days, Trump has shown that he's willing to evolve his position. Just look at what he's done on China and Russia. Um, he's pretty much flip-flopped those countries in his mind in some ways. Um, so there is a chance, I think, where you could sort of see some of this rhetoric maybe calm down. But I think the other real prospect here is that we just have to adjust for the fact that we have a president who pops off, says what's on his mind, doesn't always cohere with... Far, with the rest of his government's foreign policy, but right. you know we're going to have to adjust for that. Well, well, thanks for um, helping us adjust to it. Uh, Eli Lake is a Bloomberg View contributor. Remember to uh, read his most recent column. Trump decides to make it springtime for despots. That's on BloombergView.com. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.